Hello and welcome to a follow-up episode of our Patent Settlement podcast series. My name is Helena Connors and today I'm joined by one of my competition team colleagues, Sophie Lawrence. We'll be talking about the key takeaways from the long-awaited Court of Justice judgment in Lundbeck, which was handed down a few weeks ago. So Sophie, does this latest judgment tell us anything we didn't know before about patent settlement agreements? So the short answer is not really, but before our listeners all tune out, um, there is a slightly longer answer, which is that this judgment is the first definitive confirmation of how Article 101 of the treaty applies to patent settlement agreements. Although we'd previously had the generics UK judgment um, just over a year ago, that came before the Court of Justice via a different procedural route to this Lundbeck case. And a key distinction between those two routes is that the court in the generics case was effectively providing input on the law to a national court, whereas Lundbeck's an appeal of a commission decision. And while that appeal is, like all Court of Justice appeals, limited to points of law, the Court of Justice judgment is also, in effect, determinative on the facts of this particular case. Yes, I see that. Um, And one of the key areas where this comes up is in the considerations around whether generics manufacturers and originator companies are potential competitors. And we've gone into more detail on this topic in our previous podcasts. But to summarise, the court held that Lundbeck and the generics manufacturers were potential competitors. As prior to the settlement agreements, there were real and concrete possibilities that the generics would enter the market and compete with Lundbeck. In its analysis of potential competition, the court considered whether the generics had taken sufficient preparatory steps to enter the market, for example, by making relevant financial investments and taking steps towards obtaining a marketing authorization. The court also looked at whether there were any insurmountable barriers to entry and whether there were additional factors that shed light on the competitive relationship of the parties. Yes. And on that last point, it confirmed the position established in the Generics UK judgment that process patents for the manufacture of an active ingredient that is itself in the public domain, because the patent over the API has expired, for example, are not in themselves to be viewed as an insurmountable barrier to entry. Similarly, it's not for the competition authorities to seek to demonstrate that the patentee would have been likely to win or indeed lose the underlying patent litigation. So far, so familiar. However, in line with what I've already said, I found it interesting to see which particular facts the court chose to pick out for discussion in this case. Notably, in relation to this issue, it made clear that not only had Lundbeck's original patents over the API expired, but other methods of production of generic citalopram were available which didn't infringe Lundbeck's patents. So although the legal principles as to when companies will be in potential competition with each other are quite broadly expressed, the facts stated by the Commission seem to indicate that there were routes to market which avoided Lundbeck's patents completely. And I do think that weighed in the court's consideration. And one further factual point I found interesting was the emphasis placed on so-called subjective factors evidencing whether the parties viewed each other as potential competitors. While the Court of Justice has made clear that you can't determine this question solely on such subjective factors, it did endorse the General Court's view that the very fact of the agreement having been entered into was the strongest evidence that Lundbeck viewed the generic companies as competitors. And that was so regardless of whether the generic in question had actually succeeded in obtaining the MA it had applied for. So this is another clear indication that a party can be a potential competitor even before its product is authorised, so long as it's been taking active steps to seek authorisation in a timely manner. Yes, so the court confirmed the position on potential competitors. 
But what about the other main point of contention here, which was whether patent settlement agreements that involve a reverse payment or value transfer and result in delayed entry of the generic amount to a restriction of competition by object? What did the courts have to say about this particular issue? Again, there weren't any big surprises here. Um, the court confirmed that although um, these sorts of agreements won't in all circumstances amount to by object restriction, if there is a value transfer that has no other purpose than to avoid competition on the merits, the agreement will be deemed to amount to a restriction of competition by object. The court also confirmed that it's irrelevant whether the restriction is within the scope of the patent or not, which was an argument that had been advanced by Lindbeck in, in the case. And the reason it did that was that in the absence of a patent judgment, it can't be said with certainty that the patent is either valid or infringed by the generic company. Um, and so that consideration about the scope of the patent isn't viewed as relevant for considering whether there's a restriction of competition by object. However, in the same way as with the potential competition topic we've already discussed, the court's selection of the particular facts to illustrate its points are interesting. I noted in particular that the court emphasised that the parties were in dispute over whether Lundbeck's process patents were strong enough to prevent the market entry of generic citalopram. The court therefore found that this divergence of opinion meant that the patents couldn't in themselves have been the decisive basis for the commitments made by the generic companies not to enter the market. I found the approach to no challenge clauses to be rather similar to this. The court explained that the particular agreements gave rise to restrictions by object in spite of the fact that they did not contain express no challenge provisions. The generics manufacturers had no incentive to challenge Lundbeck's process patents because they received the reverse payments. And so the absence of an explicit no challenge provision didn't matter. Yes, and one additional point to note is that the question of whether or not a value transfer is significant enough to act as an inducement to delay generic entry is important because it goes both to the question of whether the parties are potential competitors and whether the agreement amounts to a restriction of competition by object. Um, but the Court of Justice ultimately confirmed that this is something that has to be assessed on a case-by-case -case basis. Thanks, Sophie. So overall, I think we're agreed that the judgment is therefore mostly just a confirmation of previous case law, albeit a helpful one, which clarifies how the law should be applied to particular facts. But were there any points that did come as a surprise to you? Not particularly in respect of patent settlements themselves, given the way that the law has already evolved up to now. Um, it is perhaps worth saying that there has been considerable controversy over how the competition authorities have dealt with the existence of IP rights in these sorts of cases. But that discussion, unfortunately, isn't one we have time to go into today. However, I did want to just flag an interesting procedural point that came up in the Zellia and Alfama judgment, um, which was the judgment that dealt with the particular agreements that those companies had entered into with Lundbeck. Essentially, those two companies argued that the total duration of the administrative procedure, so that's the procedure when the investigation was ongoing, was unreasonably long. And so as a result, they hadn't retained relevant um, evidence that could have assisted them. And they argued that this was an infringement of their rights of defence. The General Court had already dismissed this argument, um, saying that the companies should have retained the documents back to the date when the Danish Competition Authority first notified the Commission about the potentially anti-competitive agreements. And that was back in 2003. Um, and the General Court said that even though actually Zellia and Alfama were only informed of the formal proceedings against Lundbeck in 2010 and 2011, respectively. Now, the Court of Justice did find that the General Court had gone too far in its judgment, 
and that the, the obligation didn't stretch back as far as 2003. However, the court did find that the parties were bound by a duty of care to retain relevant documents following the initiation of the Commission Pharmaceutical Sector Inquiry in 2008. Um, and the reason for that was that the pharmaceutical sector inquiry was the point at which the Commission made clear that patent settlement agreements might fall within the scope of the competition rules. Um, and the, the, the Court of Justice essentially said that the parties should, should at that point have taken steps to ensure that they possessed the necessary evidence in, in the event that there was some subsequent administrative action or judicial proceedings. So the Court of Justice appears to have expanded the duty to retain evidence here. Because prior to this judgment, we were only aware that an increased duty of care to maintain records and documents applied once the Commission engaged with a particular party in the context of an investigation. Now it seems that where a sector inquiry is initiated, affected parties should ensure that they retain relevant documents in case that sector inquiry prompts an investigation into their activities. And if this is truly what the court meant, it is potentially significant as commission sector inquiries can be extremely wide reaching and affect tens or hundreds of companies, um, or indeed thousands. Take, for example, the e-commerce sector inquiry in which the commission gathered evidence from nearly 2000 companies operating in the e-commerce sector. The Court of Justice did not make any comment as to the specific scope of this duty, but the judgment suggests that this enhanced duty is more likely to apply where undertakings are well established in the market under inquiry and where they've concluded agreements of the type expressly referred to in the decision that initiated the inquiry, which was the case here in relation to the pharmaceutical sector inquiry. So based on the judgment, it does seem that this obligation is particularly relevant to companies' ability to defend themselves rather than being uh, some sort of basis for the competition authority to impose sanctions on them for destruction of documents. But I do think that it means that companies involved in sector inquiries need to think pretty carefully um, whether they should take some steps to preserve certain documents for an extended period of time. Thanks, Sophie. It will definitely be interesting to see whether the Commission will start to apply this enhanced duty to retain documents in its future investigations. So to sum up, there are still a number of unanswered questions about patent settlement agreements but the court does appear to be confirming the position on the identification of potential competitors and on the characterization of bio-object infringements. Thank you for tuning into this episode of our podcast series on the Lundbeck Judgment. A reminder that you can find additional content on patent settlement agreements, as well as other areas of law relevant to those in the life sciences sector on our On The Pulse and Clipboard blog sites. Please keep your eyes peeled for further content from us, including podcasts in the future.